Hello, everyone. Welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I am your host, Alex Wong. And after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson, to recap and walk through all of the major talking points of the documentary series. Before we get started, Russ, I just want to give a quick shout out to Soul Savvy and their entire team for giving the two of us the space to chat about this documentary series. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. All right, Russ, so we had a chance to watch the first episode of The Last Dance. And before we even get into all of these storylines, what were your initial impressions of this documentary? Because there was so much hype and expectation going into it. We've been waiting for this for so long. I mean, it's hilarious that it came out that the whole reason this hasn't happened before is Jordan was like holding on to the footage and didn't want it released until apparently LeBron led the Cavs to the title in 2016 when he decided, oh, it's okay now. So that's that's some Hall of Fame speech level of petty that only Michael Jordan is capable of, and I wholeheartedly appreciate it. Um, but I love the way they started it off just, you know, panning in on him, sitting in this panoramic window, presumably at one of his houses. And I think I told you in a text, like, it's so funny that the back shot of him with the ears, like, all it reminds me of is the Michael Jordan cologne bottle. The infamous Michael Jordan cologne, which uh, I am, am I ashamed? I am not ashamed to say that I still use. I wrote a story Are about it last year. It? I, I am. You can smell that, right? Through yeah. the Zoom screen. It comes through the computer. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that opening scene and just the entire setup before we even get into the credits, the opening credits was pretty incredible. I think just a quick five minute summation for any, and maybe this was more tailored towards younger fans, I would say, to, to really let them know that the Bulls were not just a basketball team and Michael Jordan wasn't just a basketball player. Like these guys at the height of their powers going for six championships in the 90s, they were the most famous up there with some of the most famous people just in the world. Oh, they, they were so above and beyond. I mean, Michael Jordan was everywhere and kind of, Jordan brought everyone in his orbit into that same world, you know, so whether it was Scottie Pippen, obviously Dennis Rodman already had his own sort of following and like just showing like also his joyful, insane reaction to winning that title in 91 through like the 92, 93, 96, 97 and like how it kind of became this more, you know, it was still this wild celebration, but you could see how it could wear on you after a while, where it's like you have to play all 82, and then if you don't win a title, you've failed. And, and I think like, and I know we're going to get to this, but one of the crazy things for me, and like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna come right out and say how old I am because I don't feel like it. We got 10 episodes. I'll get to it. But, uh, you know, as someone who is an adult during that title run, there are things you forget. And the, the fact that Michael Jordan, you know, then even recognized as the greatest player of all time, playing for the Bulls, who had come off a 72-win title season, a 69-win title season, and one of the first questions he has to answer in the post-championship press conference is about rebuilding and whether they're going to blow the whole thing up. So, like, if he can't win a title and have the immediate thought be like, 
okay, when are you going to win the next one? But instead, like, when is your GM going to blow up the team? Like, no one should feel safe. Yeah, and I think that was a really eye-opening moment for me too because if you think about how we talk about dynasties in modern times, imagine this happening as Shaq and Kobe, and we know that Shaq and Kobe had a lot of personal issues too as they won their three championships, but imagine that was the talk after they won, say, their second championship together of right. when 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 should the rebuild start and and you look at other teams that have come along too like when lebron went to miami when kevin durant went to golden state for me watching that scene and, and watching this episode just tells me that egos and whatever other factors there are will just always get in the way and we should never assume that dynasties or super teams are going to last any longer than say like three seasons it's so hard to keep them together and like i i think like it's funny with that comparison because with the shaq and kobe lakers the fight was to keep them together, you know, and to to figure out how to build around them to keep it going and bring in guys like Peyton and Carl uh, Malone, you know, and like keep these two guys who genuinely didn't like each other and probably didn't talk very much off the court, keep them a functional unit on the court. And on this hand, on this side, you have Jordan and Pippen who, you know, represent probably the best partnership in basketball in our lifetimes. And like, they're basically just being pulled apart. You know, that leads to something else where it's like, when you're setting up, not just like a single episode documentary, but this 10 episode epic, you know, it's important to set up the backstory, which you did with the championships. And then to lay out pretty much right away, like, who's the hero of this story? And who's the villain? And the hero part's easy. Michael Jordan's the hero of pretty much any story he's part of. And again, like the epic, you know, slow roll zoom in on him in the beginning, like sets him up as the hero, the, you have the hero's origin story, which we'll get to. But the villain in this is it, it's it's a little more difficult, you know, like Jerry Krause is an obvious villain. It's still hard to imagine a GM saying to Phil Jackson, like, this is your last season and to be have his relationship with him so broken that the owner has to go and make him have him sign his deal for the last year so you can try and follow up the you know to finish this second three-peat but then you have like scotty pippen who didn't seem too excited about getting started on that third you have jerry reinsdorf who could have easily fired jerry kraus and didn't and just kind of sat back so you know i think that's going to be interesting to watch as this series goes on so let's use that heroes and villains to really run through some of these characters that are introduced in the first episode you know before we even get to that it's funny that you mentioned that michael is being like set up as the hero which which obviously makes sense i mean this is michael's story and the story of the greatest player of all time but with all the interviews that michael has done michael thinks he's gonna come out looking like the villain which is fascinating to me yeah yeah i mean i as someone who watched Jordan's entire career and obviously watched his Hall of Fame speech and, you know, know all the backstory from Sam Smith's books and like him punching Steve Kerr in the face and whatever else, what could possibly they have shot that would make Michael Jordan, who clearly has been fine with being a sociopath in all areas of his life, to think like, oh man, this is going to make me look bad. You mean you didn't get that from the scene in this first episode when he was with Kraus at practice and he asked if those pills were to keep him short or if they were diet pills? Oh, I mean, look, his 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 cutting stuff is incredible. 
you know, like, I know we'll get to this too, but like later on in Paris, when Scott Burrell is all excited about winning the, you know, winning the McDonald's championship and Mike is just sitting there in his chair looking at him like, what are you talking about? You know, and he eventually does when they go back in the locker room, give him that little bit of, you know, okay, you guys who haven't won a title before, this is a little taste. But yeah, I mean, he's ruthless. So understanding how ruthless he is and what his like kind of baseline for behavior is, like what constitutes horrifyingly bad Michael Jordan behavior to Michael Jordan? That's a really great point. And I think we will probably see some stuff that'll be worth talking about in the upcoming episodes. So the key storyline of episode one is like you referenced the summer of 97 the bulls have just won their fifth championship and there's already talks of rebuilding phil jackson is not under contract and owner jerry reinstorf has to eventually fly to montana to get phil to sign a one-year deal and jerry Krause tells phil jackson in a meeting that even if you go 82 and 0 this is your last season and my favorite tidbit out of that segment was that Krause's stepdaughter had a wedding that summer, and he invited the entire Bulls team, Tim Floyd, who he was already grooming to be the Bulls coach, and he would eventually replace Phil Jackson the following season. But Phil was not invited to the wedding. My question to you is, I'm watching all this and I'm wondering, we know that all roads lead to Krause when it comes to conflict with the Bulls. Jordan and Krause, Pippen and Krause, Phil and Jerry Krause. Why didn't Jerry Reinsdorf just hire another GM at that time? I don't know. I don't know. And, and that is like a, that's a question I hope this documentary answers a little more as it goes along, because you had that setup when Jerry Reinsdorf says like people warned him off of Krauss when he hired him as the Bulls GM in 85. But, you know, he thought Krauss was the guy who could put this team together for him. And he was proven right. You know, that's something that I think it was Tim Vansell, the guy who wrote Rare Air, says, like, you know, you have to give Jerry Krause a lot of credit. Like, he he did all the right things. He got Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen in the same draft. Those two guys were responsible for three and six championships, respectively. You know, he he traded Charles Oakley, who was Michael Jordan's best friend on the team, for Bill Cartwright because he knew they needed a center if they were going to win. And he was right. So he did all these things correctly. And what's kind of insane, and I think, unfortunately, what makes Jerry Krause Jerry Krause is being sure of himself enough that when Pippen and Jordan, you know, gave him a hard time or were ripping on him to say like, hey, I helped build this. You can say whatever you want to me. You can't take that away. But he had to look like to still be looking forward and was looking forward to the point where he was willing to alienate the greatest player on the planet in his prime rather than just say like, okay, fine. You know, you guys got me. On some level, Jerry Krause, and I, it's so sad that he's not here to give like current day answers to some of these things. And like, that's kind of almost the next level petty thing of Michael Jordan to like, let this be released after Krause died. But Krause being willing to antagonize Michael Jordan to the extent of making him walk away from basketball, Krauss might have been more sociopathic than Jordan was. It's funny to me just because if I'm putting myself in Krauss's shoes, like what more would you want? Like you small shoes. You are you are the general manager of the greatest team 
of the modern day era and everybody knows like you just ran through all the moves that he made to put michael in a position to win those championships like did he just want michael <laughs> and scotty's respect and it's funny to me too because if, if there's any person that i would say if you do, did a ranking of list of guys on that bulls team in that organization that should have felt disrespected i think scotty is number one and then probably phil because I don't know, even though I know Phil Jackson gets a lot of credit for being the Zen master and for managing all the egos, Phil probably has a better argument than Jerry Krause for not getting enough credit for how much he contributed to those teams. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with Phil and Krause because, you know, as they pointed out in that episode, and it's true, like without Krause, Phil Jackson might never get into the NBA. Phil, I mean, Jerry was the one who convinced Reinsdorf to bring Phil in as an assistant under Doug Collins. Without Jerry Krause, Phil Jackson might be still coaching the Albany Patroons in the CBA and then coaching in the Philippine League in the offseason. Maybe, on the other hand, talent wins out and eventually he does get an NBA shot somewhere else. You know, it's interesting that Jackson was essentially a Jerry Krause creation, yet Krause is the one who ends up driving him out because Phil got credit and Krause didn't. It's just a bizarre thing because... I don't know. I keep going back to the way Krauss reacted to all this stuff. And like, if you're a GM, you don't get day-to-day -day credit. Your credit is that you built the team. You build the team, you send it out there, then they play, the coach coaches, and yeah, they get the day-to-day -day credit. That's how it works. Jerry Krauss was probably making more, I don't know how much money he was making, honestly. I don't remember. And maybe they'll mention that. But was he as underpaid as Scottie Pippen was? Probably not. And I did want to jump back to that for a second too, because that was another fascinating thing that Jerry Reinsdorf coming out and saying, like, I told Scotty not to sign this contract. Like, it is too long. I definitely remember, like, the problem Pippen had was with his upbringing and being part of a big, poor family, like, he just wanted that security. Like, he wanted long-term contracts. And unfortunately, signing a long-term contract in 91, right before, like, you know, I guess the NBA, the salaries were already skyrocketing, but right before they got really crazy... That's how you end up being the 122nd highest paid player in basketball. When you're for, arguably the, what, second fifth? or third best <laughs> yeah. player in the league? Fifth at worst, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. We got to give the listeners some context, too. I mean, during that 96-97 season, the salary cap was $26 million in the NBA. Like that, I, I know now these days when we're throwing out numbers, it's, you know, uh, teams are going like over 130 million, 150 million into the luxury tax. And we'll, we'll get more into the, into Scotty in episode two for sure. Yeah. But the yeah. seven years, 18 million at the time, combined with the fact that he wanted that financial security, it didn't look as bad in 1991 as it did, obviously, by the time you got to 98, especially when you realize how valuable Scotty was. The one more thing I wanted to ask you about Jerry Krause was he has this famous quote, which he gave to the New York Times, that organizations win championships. And he has said repeatedly that, you know, a few words were left out that, you know, he meant to say that players don't win championships alone and, and not that players don't win championships. What are your thoughts about just that quote and how much that must have drove Michael, Scotty, and just that entire team going into that last dance season? It's funny. I think like, you know, that goes back to his sort of pathological need for, you know, respect or need for recognition. Um, I don't think it was wrong, but I think he should have known, even if you included all the words, which to me is like 
a, a Trumpian sort of, you know, argument, even if all the words were there, of course, Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were going to push back against that, especially Jordan. There was an ESPN clip in there that I forget who it was, Mark Jones, but someone saying like, you know, Jerry said organizations win championships, but how many times did you post up and shoot a jumper? You know, it's true. It's like your credit is going to come again. Like when someone looks at the architect of the Bulls championship teams, it's Jerry Krause, but he always wanted more than that. You know, it's like, there's something that I don't think they've touched on that. They didn't touch on it in this episode, but you know, I know like one of his claims to fame as a basketball scout was like finding Earl Monroe. And I think Jordan always used to give him a hard time about that. Like, cause Monroe got picked like second or third overall. And Jordan would always say to Krause, like, yeah, what, if you didn't find him, he would have fallen the fourth, you know, it's <laughs> like, come on, dude. So, I mean, that's just, I guess, Jerry being Jerry. Yeah. And my last thing on Jerry, this might have to be just a weekly segment, just petty Michael moment of the week. It's opening night, 97, 98. They're having their ring ceremony. And before they head out to the crowd at the United Center, uh, Michael sees Jerry and asks if he wants to do layups with them. And he says, they're going to have to lower the rim for you. <laughs> they, they, and they probably would have. I mean, they're, I am anticipating so many shots fired moments in this 10 part series you know we just got a taste like between that and the little water cooler scene and all i could think of with that water cooler scene is like jerry why are you like tucking your shirt into your pants with a belt when you look like a weeble like dude someone someone's got to talk to you do you think mj dresses the way he does now uh as a as a subtle diss to uh, jerry krause's attire in the 90s (laughs) burning question right into it (laughs) I did appreciate the scene of Jerry coming out of the Birdo Center and getting into his caddy and like peeling off like some very minor character from Goodfellas. The, the way the documentary is structured, there's two concurrent storylines that happen. Obviously, they are going to focus on all the footage that they got for the 97-98 season. But at the same time, they're going back and telling the entire career story of Michael Jordan. So... In this episode, we touch on the summer of 97 as a way to set up the last dance, but we also flash back to Michael Jordan in his college years at North Carolina. And those are some of my favorite scenes because, I mean, for me personally, I grew up watching Jordan in the 90s and I was more familiar with his second three-peat. Obviously, you read about Jordan, you hear about Jordan, the slam dunk contest, the 63 points against the Boston Celtics, all that. But to see the interviews in this series and to see people like Roy Williams and James Worthy, his teammate, saying that he was better than Mike pause for about two weeks, um, <laughs> like during their, oh, their, their season One together. One of my favorite quotes of that season. Yeah. That um, what was it like just watching Mike at North Carolina hitting that shot in the national championship? By the way, shout out Patrick Ewing, man, just being terrorized by Mike his entire career. What was it like watching those North Carolina scenes? Well, I said I wasn't going to say my age, but I guess I have to own up. Like, I'm not quite that old. I'm close. But so I was 11 during that championship game. And like, I definitely don't remember watching that on TV. Like, I remember probably hearing about it. Um, Although I think even then I was probably more like loosely following NBA stuff. But watching the watching the sort of Michael Jordan origin story, I mean, it's sort of in the you know, we're in the Michael Jordan cinematic universe. Um, just watching him shoot, you know, and watching those Carolina practices and, you know, watching him hit those jumpers from the side, which 
there were a couple he shot in practice that were pretty much identical to the shot he hit to beat Georgetown. You know, you could just see where that work came from. One thing I picked up on in the Carolina practice footage right away, and I'm assuming anyone else watching this for like some of the sneaker content noticed, he was wearing Adidas during practice at Carolina. You know, all the other guys are wearing like their pro stars or whatever, uh, you know, whatever else. And he had like forums on, which actually dates that practice, I think. Well, I I think later, probably, probably either sophomore or junior year. But I love that little detail of him actually still wearing Adidas. Worthy was amazing. You know, when he said he was better than he was, and I was like, uh-oh. And then he said for about two weeks, like, oh, all right, there you go. And I think we we texted about this at one point, but yo, if Roy Williams showed up in my parents' living room and I was a top-level player, I think I would have signed on the spot. Like, man, Roy is good. That was probably my, like, outside of the worthy one, my other favorite quote from that Carolina period was when Roy Williams said, like, Jordan was the only player he saw who could turn it on and off. And he never turned it off. I was just like, Ooh. <laughs> just let Roy Williams narrate this whole 10 episode series, man. Yo, that'd be amazing. <laughs> we should, we should do that at some point. Like, I don't know about during this first one, but like, we should go like through a top 10 of people who could narrate this because yeah. he'd be up there. Like uh, uh, Bill, Bill Wennington, Bill Wennington would be my uh, dark horse pick in the first Ooh. round. Yeah. You know, you know, what I really like too is uh, Joe Klein. Joe Klein probably has some good stories too, man. It's those bench guys who are just there for everything and have nothing to lose to tell all these stories. And also Joe Klein between the hair and the sweatsuit and everything else struck me as like a Sopranos character who Michael Imperioli would have killed off in like one episode. Bob Costas. I might get tired of Bob Costas though for for 10 episodes. It would be too poetic for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I like Roy. I like Roy. I like the, I like the Carolina accent. Um, I also like one thing, and like I'm sure this is going to pop up throughout. First of all, shout out to Dolores Jordan, who looks fantastic. I don't know how old she is, but I need to adopt like her skincare regime. I look older than she does. Um, but I do love that she refers to James Jordan, Mike's dad, as Mr. Jordan all the time. I assume that's like a that's probably a southern thing, but yeah, I love that. I love yeah, that, that was one of my favorite scenes of the week when. Michael's mom, Dolores, reads a letter in present day that Michael had written to her while he was at North Carolina saying that I think he only had like $10 left in his account and he wanted needed to his account to be deposited and he was asking for stamps. And, you know, this turns out to be the goat. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's your uh, human Michael Jordan moment of the week. <laughs> but I also love and like, you know, because it, it gets into his rookie season in Chicago. And first of all, you could, you could, well, you could see him as his dad almost like when he comes and he's wearing that black leather coat and the black flat cap. It's just like, yo, you're like James. You're just taller. And to even rewind with that, another one of my favorite sneaker scenes is in that uh, montage before the opening credits when he's got the duffel bag and he's got the white and red airships and he's pulling the black toe Jordan ones out of the duffel. I don't know why that wasn't the two pair set. Instead of the ship and that that sort of prototype red and white Jordan one that he wore in like one game, it should have been the white and red and the black toes, and they should have come in a replica of that duffel bag. But, you know, I don't work for Jordan. So, call so me. Russ, Russ, what you're saying is you're going to use your clout to get us to customize sets of those? I don't shoes? even have the clout to get the actual airship pack that dropped. And I wrote about the airship back when I was at like Kicks. So... <laughs> 
you know, I saw a lot of people saying like, oh, you know, I told him about this or like I wrote about the ship. It's like, I didn't even say it, but it's like, yo, I, I wrote about the airship before there was a sneaker internet and I didn't get a set. So what do you do? <laughs> that was another favorite moment of mine at Carolina. So he hits that game winning shot and they interview him in the F in the locker room afterwards. Yo, kid Michael Jordan. Like I get that he was only 18 at that point, but he came off as such like this. He was like a high schooler. Like he was so giddy. And so like, he just sounded so different than the Mike we all know. There was no but sociopathic like, uh, energy to him. In but that but moment. there were things like, it's funny, like his voice was totally different. His attitude was totally different. But when you, when they showed him like just sort of walking on the practice court or walking in the Bulls practice facility as a rookie, it was literally the same exact walk he had 15 years later in the finals. A question I had for you was Michael was getting some fits off in the eighties. Like when he was riding the bike in the team USA uniform. That was and, incredible. Yeah. And just the general way he dressed, like he was a hip dude. What happened? I don't know. I don't know. There, there's definitely like a, a distinct demarcation line when Mike, when Mike's fashion took a left when it should have taken a right. And it's never been the same since it must've happened like post playing career. You know, I, th I think with the bulls, he was still getting fits off. Like he was wearing the super tailored suits and like, Obviously, he had like all the the Nike and Jordan sweatsuits, but uh, yeah, sometime after that, I, I I'm not sure what happened. My conspiracy theory is he lost a five million dollar golf bet with Charles Barkley, and Charles gave him the option to either pay the bet or wear these size 46 jeans for the rest of your life. And also, as people know, Charles and Mike are not on good terms right now. They're I believe they haven't spoke in a while so i am gonna have to trace that back to this uh this i also kind of want to see them solve that you know it's like i think like and and i don't want to get off on a tangent here but like what when kobe died one of my first thoughts is like man like ever all these guys who have random beefs need to figure it out and the one the one i really want to get settled was chris weber and and uh jalen rose like i don't want them to like God forbid something to happen to one of them and for the re the other one to live the rest of his life being like, I wish we figured this out. You know, I want them to figure it out. And Chuck and Mike too, like, yo, they, they were best friends for so long. Like, get it right. Please get it right. Th there, were, there were a lot of moments in this first episode that got me like feeling kind of misty. I don't know. Uh, no, no actual tears, but we were getting close. And that highlight rookie montage set to I Ain't No Joke I definitely got chills. Like as someone who did watch Mike in the early days and as someone who literally wore out the tape of NBA superstars where his highlights were instead set to uh, take my breath away from Top Gun, that was what that highlight reel should have been. He had that no-look pass against Detroit for a dunk when I was just like, <laughs> that's like the, the rewind button. Like, did that really happen? I think shout outs to the producers on this doc, the soundtrack, at least the two episodes that I've watched so far. It's been great. Even the been around the world that played before the opening credits, I thought was perfect. I think they've picked the perfect songs to encapsulate the different eras that Mike was in. And I think the, the Rakim, I no joke that they played over that rookie montage was just perfect. So one more thing I want to get to for this episode is Mike in his rookie season, you know, he's this wide eyed, 20-year-old kid, 
And he walks into the quote-unquote Bulls traveling cocaine circus, an actual <laughs> quote from a newspaper at the time. So Mike tells this incredible story that basically guys were doing things that you know he had never seen before. And there was one time he was knocking on the door at the hotel of his teammates' rooms, and he hears the whole team going, oh, man, like someone's at the door. And someone goes, oh, don't worry. It's just the rookie. So they let him in. And Mike says this, quote, it was things I've never seen in my life. You got your lines over there. You got your weed smokers over there. You got your women over there. And then it cuts to Michael being like, no, nah, I don't want to be part of this shit at all. And it cuts to him at his townhouse just doing laundry and wash, washing his Bulls warm-up gear, which was amazing. I, I, love, I love the moment that the interviewer read off that Bulls flying cocaine circus and Mike just lost it. Like, I love the genuine human moments you get with Jordan because I feel like you don't get a lot of those. I feel like we've gotten more of those recently, you know, whether it was Hall of Fame speech a little bit, but like him talking at Kobe's memorial service. Like, um, I think we've seen a lot of the human Jordan lately. And I was happy to get like the laughing human Jordan at that moment. I know like back in the 90s when Tony Gervino and I went out to Chicago to interview Mike for the Jordan special issue we did with Slam. I've been going back through like a lot of those old tapes. And um, there was one point I asked him like what he learned from those early Bulls teammates when he was a rookie. And his answer was just to not be like them. That was kind of summed up in that big story. But yeah, I did love the, the, the story about Mike is that he took home ep economics in high school because he wasn't having so much luck with the ladies. So he thought like he might have to handle all his own stuff. So he's there like vacuuming the rug and doing the laundry and making his bed. Like, yeah, no, that, that, that was, that was cool. That was cool. Yep. Yeah, Mike was trying to run an Airbnb business back in 84, man. <laughs> uh, that's my highlight of the week. So my highlight of the week is definitely the scene of him doing laundry in his townhouse. What was your highlight of the week, Russ? You know, I I do think it was, it was that rookie stuff with the Bulls. It, it was just seeing those plays again and seeing like, you know, I know Kirk Goldsberry wrote a piece recently about, you know, how Mike kind of dominated the mid-range and how, you know, no one, literally no one scored like he did not dunks, but just like those shots and watching him as a rookie and watching him at Carolina and how quick he was not only in getting to a spot, but getting his shots off. He had uh, the other highlight, I think just like how he was able to get to where he could shoot and shoot, let alone dunking, let alone that block at North Carolina where he literally hit his head on the backboard. Like, what are you doing? How does this even happen? To me, the highlight, yeah, the highlight was the highlights. Just just remembering what young Mike could do to people. And after watching this first episode, what are you most looking forward to in terms of subplots and storylines? For me, I just want everything Jerry Krause. <laughs> yeah, I want that. One thing I'm looking forward to, you know, and this is kind of cheating because it brings in with the second episode, but like, you know, the first episode, we get the Michael Jordan superhero backstory. The second episode, we get the Scottie Pippen backstory super looking forward to the Dennis Rodman backstory. I want to see Dennis Rodman college highlights because I don't remember a lot of that. You know, hopefully hopefully we get deep dives with some of the other guys too. I would love to see some Steve Kerr at Arizona. Give me some Bill Wennington at St. John's. You know, I'm looking forward to a lot of that backstory stuff. All right, Russ, that does it for us for this episode. So Russ, you go call your Jordan brand connections while I just keep browsing online for discount codes, all right? Yeah, I'll see if we can get set up. I mean, honestly, right now, I'm not even wearing shoes because I know you're not going to see my feet. So 
<laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first episode. You can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. Shoutouts once again to Soul Savvy, and Russ and I will be back for episode two. Bye.